Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And this is part two of our look at rape and sexual assault in America. In our first episode, we looked at rape culture and how we got to where we are in our country and in our culture as far as our views on women, women's sexuality, and rape. This episode, we're going to talk to you more about the nuts and bolts of the statistics of it. Who are the victims? Who are the perpetrators? What is the issue of reporting that makes these numbers so kind of hazy? And of course, we want to kick things off with a trigger warning for people who might be sensitive to hearing details about rape and sexual assault. Um, and also, as we mentioned in the last podcast, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about the specifics of certain high profile cases like what happened in Steubenville, Ohio, because what we really want to do with these two episodes is try to educate ourselves and hopefully educate you listeners about some of the things that aren't talked about so much uh, in terms of maybe the history of rape laws and uh, the statistics of really who this is happening to. And first off for this episode, we want to talk about rape and sexual assault, why we keep using those two terms and, and what those terms actually mean. What do we mean, Caroline, when we are talking about rape and sexual assault? And this is coming from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And so sexual assault is an umbrella term for, quote, a wide range of victimizations separate from rape or attempted rape. Um, it's attacks or attempted attacks generally involving unwanted sexual contact between a victim and an offender and verbal attacks can also constitute sexual assault. So this is why in the last episode and in this episode you hear us say rape and sexual assault. Right. And not only verbal, but visual as well. Um, people who are flashers. Exhibitionism is a form of sexual assault. So what else falls under this umbrella? We have inappropriate touching, any type of vaginal, anal or oral penetration, any sexual intercourse to which you say no and that includes rape and attempted rape. Child molestation also falls under sexual assault. And specifically, then, what rape means is a forced sexual intercourse, including both psychological coercion as well as physical force. And forced sexual intercourse uh, means vaginal, anal, or oral penetration by the offender. But that psychological aspect is important as well because... Um, as we talked about in our last episode, looking more at the history of rape and, and rape laws, there was this movement away, slowly, slowly, slowly away from having the burden on the victim of having to prove that they tried with all of their might to get away from the offender. But there are actually a lot of psychological issues that can go with this as well. Sometimes uh, victims might not try to fight their way out because they might be physically in danger if they do. So it's important to realize that, that there is a lot of nuance within these kinds of terms. But over at Slate, uh, Brian Palmer talks about how the legal definition does very state by state, because in the United States, we have these these overarching federal laws. So that's why we cited the Bureau of Justice Statistics. But 
within each state, the definition of sexual assault and rape can change. So in New Jersey, for instance, sexual assault is synonymous with rape, whereas in Pennsylvania, rape requires the use or threat of force, whereas sexual assault refers to any act of intercourse without consent. And side note, sexual assault didn't become a legal term until the 1960s as part of the feminism-fueled reform movement that we talked about in our last episode. And at that time, actually, some of these reformers wanted to remove the term rape altogether because of its connotation as a crime of passion rather than being a violent offense. That's something that we also see with uh, the, within the history of rape is how it has been slowly reframed as not a crime of dishonor against a woman and her family, but as a physical assault as it is. So when we take a look at who the victims of rape and sexual assault are in our country, it is a very broad demographic. Um, These statistics, by the way, are coming from RAIN, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network and the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which we've already cited. According to the U.S. Department of Justice National Crime Victimization Survey, there are 237,868 victims over the age of 12 every year. Now, that said, the annual rate of female rape or sexual assault has declined 58 percent from 1995 to 2010, from five victimizations per 1,000 women to 2.1 per 1,000. So that's good news. It's great that the that the rate has declined. But at the same time, actual numbers could be higher. Uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention conducted the National Intimate Partner Violence and Sexual Violence Survey and counted 1.2 million victims of rape and attempted rape in 2010 alone. So this is something that uh, a lot of public health advocates and groups have been looking at in terms of documenting and counting rape and sexual assault, because as we'll talk about, it's highly underreported. But even when it is reported, the way that that information is gathered is often highly flawed, Just adding to all of these problems that we have with rape and sexual assault. Well, sure, because you already cited the fact that states have different definitions of rape and Mm -hmm. sexual assault. You add to that the psychological damage of feeling shamed and embarrassed, whether you're male or female, if you've been assaulted. Well, and also add to that, too, where what is often not talked about is how this is not often an issue of stranger danger. Mm -hmm. It's an intimate partner. It's an acquaintance. It's a family member. Yeah. And so... Yeah, there might be more hesitation with reporting something like that. Absolutely. And in our country, one in six women has been the victim of attempted or completed rape. And indeed, women make up the majority of rape and sexual assault victims. Nine out of ten, in fact. Yeah, but that's not to say, obviously, that men can't be the victims of rape. Um, around 3% of American men are 1 in 33. It's estimated that 3% of men, or 1 in 33, have experienced attempted or completed rape. And, and that adds up to 2.78 million men in the United States, which is why it is important that they are not left out of this conversation either. Absolutely. And looking at children... 15% of sexual assault and rape victims are under 12 years old. 93% of juvenile victims know their assailant. Three-fourths of them knew them well. 
And children are most vulnerable to sexual assault between the ages of 7 and 13. And not surprisingly, the effects of sexual assault are wide-ranging, and they're, they're very damaging as well. This is also coming from RAIN. Um, sexual assault is linked to things like post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, self-harm, depression, sleep disorders, eating disorders, dissociative identity disorder, and so forth. And rape victims are six times more likely than average to experience PTSD. They are 13 times more likely to abuse alcohol 26 times more likely to abuse drugs and three times more likely than average to suffer depression. And I mean, and it makes sense when you think about it because of the very nature of this crime in terms of how violating it is, how personal it is. And also within the context of a society that often blames the victim often ask what they could have done to stop it or prevent it. And the answer is nothing. Um, and it, it just it's so compounded. And we already in the United States have such a hard time talking about sex and sexuality to begin with, that if we look at it in a criminal sense like this, it becomes even more shadowed. Um And when we talk about the perpetrators, I feel like it's often portrayed as some kind of stranger danger. But a lot of times it's not strangers who are the offenders. Um, The average rapist, in fact, is 31 years old and white. And a majority involves someone the victim knows. Yeah. And based on data between 1995 and 2010, 38% of sexual violence was committed by someone the victim knew. 34% by an intimate partner, 6% by a family member, 22% was committed by strangers. And between 2005 and 2010 alone, 11% of rape and sexual assault cases involved a weapon. Yeah, and and this is also not to, to say that everyone needs to be terrified of their families and intimate partners, but that, hey, we need to flip the script on how we talk about this and how we talk to girls about, quote unquote, preventing sexual assault and rape, because this is not happening from them leaving their homes and putting themselves in danger of people who don't know them doing bad things to them. But rather, the question is, what is going on in our homes? Um, but when it comes to that stranger factor, it does come a lot more into play in the nation's most at-risk population of sexual assault, which is Native American women. The rate of assaults committed by strangers is 41% among Native American women. And uh, among those women, too, the rate of sexual assault is higher than for any other group of women in the United States. Right. According to the Justice Department, one in three American Indian women have been raped or experienced attempted rape. They are twice as likely as all other races in our country. And there was a New York Times article looking at this incredibly horrific, not, I, I was going to say trend, but it's so much more of a culturally ingrained issue that this culture has to deal with, these cultures have to deal with. And they quoted so many women who just say, you know, it's not an issue of if, but when. Mm-hmm. Um Alcohol is typically involved. It's typically fueled by alcohol. And 
according to one woman, you know, she she says, I'm tired of women coming into my clinic and saying I need plan B emergency contraception for when my daughter gets raped. Yeah. I mean, considering that the rate of sexual violence in rural Alaskan villages is 12 times the national rate. And in South Dakota, where Native Americans make up 10% of the population, they account for 40% of sexual assault victims. When you hear statistics like that, yeah, there's absolutely a problem. That is like the understatement of the year to even just call it a problem. And echoing that South Dakota statistic, in Alaska... Native Americans make up 15% of the state's population, but 61% of its sexual assault victims. Yeah, and and the reasons cited um, include not just the alcohol factor that you mentioned, Caroline, but also the breakdowns of family structure probably linked to alcohol, lack of discussion about sexual violence, where it's just treated as something that will happen. Right. And I mean, nationwide, an arrest is made in just 13 percent of sexual assaults reported by Native American women to the point where people in positions of authority are basically telling these women just don't don't do it because they're saying that it's almost even more heartbreaking for these victims to come forward and try to prosecute and then have charges be dropped or have the man get acquitted than it it would be to just try to recover. And there are also these geographical challenges of a lot of these crimes happening in more remote areas where if something happens, you can't just pick up a telephone and expect a cop to be at your house in a few minutes. No, that's that's not going to happen in a rural Alaskan village, for instance. And speaking of laws, a lot of times on reservations, law enforcement is pretty scant. And then you also deal in terms of prosecution. You have to deal with tribal laws versus U.S. laws. That's why some people have said that the stranger rape happens so much more commonly on Native American reservations because it is possible to face fewer penalties because of the mismatch between what protection the U.S. federal government will afford you and how that aligns with legal protection under tribal law. Right. Um, and there have been some movements to uh, improve the the kinds of legal rights that women have. And I think that last time I checked, a lot of those uh, bills were being struck down in Congress because a lot of times those rights are being packaged up with other types of rights for, say, undocumented immigrants, uh, trans people, groups that not all of our politicians want to align themselves with. Right. And I mean, taking that and speaking about at risk populations to which perhaps our politicians are not all that sensitive, we move to looking at our military. This has also been in the news quite a bit recently. And when I say speaking of politicians, I want to quote Senator Saxby Shambliss from here in Georgia. He's a Republican who, during a Senate Armed Services Committee meeting, said that the hormone level created by nature sets in place the possibility for these types of things to occur. So basically saying that by virtue of having women in the military, that we're simply establishing an atmosphere in which rape will happen because men will be men. Right. I mean, what a horrifying thing for a guy to say about other guys. Right. You know, uh, it blows my mind. 
Well, yeah. And so looking at the rate of sexual assault in the military, reports of these assaults spiked 46 percent over the past year from 2,434 to 3,553. And about 40 percent of victims in one study, one similar study, said that the offender was a ranking officer. Yeah. And and that uptick might be due to more awareness of sexual assault within the military. This was actually something that some listeners wrote into us about when we did an episode a while ago on women in combat in the military opening up previously excluded positions to women saying, hey, guys, y'all are celebrating women in the military and you're not talking about sexual assault. Um, and it's true that this has been something that along with the progress of uh, gender equality in terms of what women are allowed and not allowed to do in the military. There has been more reporting of sexual assault. Um, and here's the thing, though. It's, again, not just female soldiers who are at risk. 53% of reported unwanted sexual contact tracked by the Pentagon were perpetrated by men on men. Right. And in these cases, a lot of times it's reported that it's more torture motivated. That rape, I mean, this is also a conversation that's been happening for years and years and years, that rape is not, as we said, a crime of passion, a crime of lust and love. It is a power issue. Yeah. As is often seen in the military. These men aren't being basically sodomized in their bunks because their peers are so attracted to them. Right. This is an issue of hazing, torture. Power. And it's not that much different for the women, the active duty women in the military who are suffering rape and sexual assault, because there was one instance where um, a woman was the victim of rape and basically her supervisors said that she was being punished because she wore running shorts and makeup. And Caroline, the fact that we are mentioning the military power dynamics and rape it just reminds me that we didn't even touch on in our last episode on looking at a history of rape on how it has been used systematically as a weapon of war. Um, but when we look back at the, the current issue of sexual assault within the U.S. military, as it is among the civilian population, it is vastly underreported. It's estimated that 75 and 76 percent of military women and men, respectively, did not report their attacks, it is estimated. Right. And the Pentagon estimates that 85 percent of sexual assault crimes overall go unreported. And this goes back to the fact that we cited earlier that about 40 percent of victims said that their uh, perpetrator was a ranking officer. So who do you who do you go to? Exactly. If you want to continue your career in the military. And because of these factors, military sexual trauma is a primary source of PTSD for female soldiers, whereas for male soldiers, the number one cause of PTSD related to the military is combat of actually it's the violence that's happening on the field, whereas for these women, it's the violence happening in their barracks. Um, but we should say, though, you, you mentioned Senator Chambliss from Georgia. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been instrumental in really leading the charge in Congress to raise awareness of this issue. And also, uh, she's, I know, authoring a bill that I think the, the vote, at least as of this recording, has been stalled at the moment. But it's a bill to change how sexual assault is reported within the military so that 
the victim would not have to report to, say, a ranking officer, that there would be a more objective uh, group that would not only process these reports, but also deal with the hearings. Because that's been a, another problem where, you know, how can you, it's like trying, it's like in the workplace, if your your boss is, you know, sexually harassing you and then you have to report it to him or her, how's that going to happen? Right, exactly. So getting more into the breakdown of underreporting, the issue of underreporting, an average of 60% of assaults in the past five years were not reported to police. Of the 40 in 100 that do, 10 lead to an arrest, of which four, only four, will lead to a felony conviction. And when you think about that trickle down of how often this crime is happening and to how often offenders are actually punished and put behind bars. If you compare that to the hue and cry we often hear in rape cases of people saying, oh, well, can we really trust her? Women are always crying rape and, you know, always blaming some person for something that she just didn't want to happen. Where when when we're actually reporting, when we're actually even reporting sexual assault, the process has so many, there's so many holes in that pipeline. You know, it's not like hordes of men are just being, you know, shepherded into prisons because women are just constantly stepping forward. And according to data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics from 2005 to 2010, Police took a report for 86% of reported victimizations. They went on to conduct a search for the offender or question witnesses for 48% of those cases. And only 12% overall resulted in an arrest, which how, I mean, just how discouraging. Those numbers themselves are discouraging to hear, but to actually be living it, I can't imagine the feeling of helplessness. Well, one of the the newest wrinkles in this whole conversation about sexual assault in the United States, there was a comprehensive study from the National Research Council that was released recently, which found that sexual assault is vastly not just underreported, but also misreported because of the way that that information is initially gathered. And so they, they're recommending things like new approaches to interviews with victims, changing the wording of questions and refocusing away from criminal aspects. And a big push for changes like that is to shift the focus away from victim blaming to actually shifting it to the alleged perpetrators. Yeah, because part of that huge underreporting issue is just that a lot of victims out there feel that they are responsible for their own attack, that they didn't do enough. They should have done something different. Why was I wearing that? Why were you wearing that? That kind of stuff. Why were you there? How how late was it? Yeah. Had you been drinking? How well did you know this person? And it's questions like that, that the police might be asking someone who, who calls them after something happens. And it's like once you get those wheels spinning, that all of a sudden you do, whether... Whether the police are meaning to or not, it might shift that that person, that that victim's mindset away from the other per the the offender to themselves. Right. It's like they're almost internalizing that victim blaming, which is 
part of why we wanted to do this two-part series because we're talking about all of these depressing statistics because if we don't talk about it, if we don't educate ourselves about it, if we don't really take a moment and face these kinds of statistics, then the situation is not going to change. We're not going to change this culture that we live in if if we don't empower ourselves with knowledge. Right. And I mean, a huge part of that is from our first episode talking about rape culture. As long as people continue to see it as women's fault or the victim's fault, whoever the victim is, then, uh, you know, we're we're never going to get all of our vulnerable people coming forward to get the help they need. Yeah. And then if you don't have the reporting, then you have a whole domino effect of, of things happening. Uh, for instance, the National Research Council stresses how important fixing that misreporting and underreporting is to, quote, understanding the frequency and context under which rape and sexual assault is committed, which is vital to directing law enforcement and victim support resources. Right. And speaking of victim support resources, there are a lot out there. Um, for more information about sexual assault, you can go to womenshealth.gov. You can call them at 800-994-9662 or contact many other organizations out there who are there to help victims. Groups like loveisrespect.org, National Center for Victims of Crime, and the National Crime Prevention Council. And one thing that is repeated often by groups such as the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is that rape and sexual assault are never the victim's fault, no matter where or how it happens. And we haven't talked much about alcohol um, that is often present in rape and sexual assault that is reported. Um, but legally speaking, if you are intoxicated, you can't consent. And that's black and white. There aren't right. blurred lines in these scenarios. And it's also why sex ed in the United States also needs to be reformed to include comprehensive in- information on what consent actually means that yes means yes and no means no. And guess what? You can say no at any point. You can. It doesn't matter what level of undress you are in, how well you know the person, what you have done in the past. At the moment that you say no, that's it. But if we can underscore anything in this episode, Caroline, I think it would be that we have got to stop the victim blaming. We have to stop telling women to dress differently, to drink differently, to interact differently, to, in other words, stop asking for it, because that's not the problem. Absolutely. I think it goes back to the idea that women or whoever the victim is, is somehow property, is less than human, is less deserving of safety, respect, dignity. The fact that you, the rapist, feels that you can take something from someone for nothing and get away with it. And it's because it is partially because of of miseducation about things like agency and consent and that yes means yes and no means no. And that goes for whether you are male, female, trans, whomever, because it doesn't matter what gender you identify with, what your body looks like. We should all have the dignity of having agency and sovereignty over our own bodies. 
Absolutely. Well, we we certainly hope that we have achieved our goal of uh, adding to the discourse and educating our listeners. We hope that you were able to take something away, maybe a different perspective, maybe some facts that you didn't know. Yeah. And and again, it would be impossible to talk about in detail every single aspect of this huge topic, even in two podcasts. Um, but we hope that we highlighted some things that maybe aren't talked about as often. So this is when we want to hear from you. And we really do want to hear from you um, because, I, again, I know this is not the the funnest topic. It is not. It is no bobby pin podcast, Caroline. No, it's not easy to talk about. And I think, I mean, that's, that's why more people don't talk about it and don't educate themselves because it is so ugly and so hard to discuss, you know, especially if you're, you know, someone like a a teenager who doesn't want to talk to your mom, for instance, like, you know, it's, it's something that more people need to be educated about and and not be so afraid to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I can speak from personal experience and tell you that when I was in high school, I was not aware of these issues of consent. I didn't know what that really meant. I didn't, you know, we we don't teach kids enough about how like precious their own bodies are. Right, and I don't think the answer is to say that, you know, when you go to college, you just remember that men are scary. Right. That's not the answer. It's not to make anyone afraid of anyone around them. You know, if, if anything, if we're going to lecture our kids about anything, it just needs to be about being aware, protect yourself, you know, just kind of common sense safety, but also educating all different types of children, 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 not Mm -hmm. teens about consent, making sure that they understand the concept because you can't just teach girls about that. Right. Right. And um, hopefully this is one conversation that can help make it a more welcoming and safer atmosphere for people who have been victims of sexual assault and rape to report it, to tell somebody, to find a resource, call a hotline, um, because it's the first step that you can take. Um, so again, if you want to learn more about what you can do, if, um, you have been a victim of sexual assault or rape, or if you know someone who has been, you can go to loversrespect.org. You can look up the National Center for Victims of Crime. You can also look at rain.org. That's the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Um, they all have websites with, Lots of information and numbers to call. So email us, momstuff at discovery.com. You can tweet us at momstuffpodcast and also find us on Facebook because we want to hear from you as well and start a discussion about these very important topics. And we are going to share a couple of letters that we have gotten from you in the past when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, Caroline, I've got a quick Facebook message here from Rochelle who says, I just listened to the Do Women Apologize More Than Men podcast. I was wondering if you think the University of Waterloo study that says men and women apologize equally is more reflective of Canadian culture rather than an observation about gender behavior overall. It's just an anecdotal observation, but I've lived in Ireland, Australia, and Canada, and the men in Canada more noticeably apologize than anywhere else. Just a thought. Love the podcast. Let's call uh, Ryan Reynolds 
and find out what Canadians do. Is he Canadian? I think he is. And oh. so is Ryan Gosling, right? Oh, I'll call him. Let's call the Ryans. I don't mind. But yeah, I, I, I do though, on a serious note, I, I, I'm sure that there is a cultural factor to that because I believe it was Japan was pointed out in some of our research as being a very pro-apology kind of culture. Whereas if you go other places, um, people are less apology prone. They just hit you in the face. Exactly. So thanks, Rochelle, for that Facebook message. So I am super happy to read this next email from a lovely listener who confirmed something for me from our Thanksgiving episode. She said, I couldn't resist answering your question that, yes, tomato aspic on Thanksgiving is a thing. But what you didn't say was whether it's pronounced tomato, like my mother says it, because that's a Virginia pronunciation. Mm. So uh, through the rest of this email, I shall pronounce it in the correct Virginia fashion, tomato. All right. Here we go. She says, When I was growing up, my grandmother always hosted a large family Thanksgiving meal, also in Virginia. She'd stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning every year, cooking and preparing for the big feast. Roast turkey, my great-grandmother's rolls, green bean casserole, cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, sweet potatoes, several kinds of pie, and, alas, tomato aspic served on a bed of lettuce. That's how we do it, too. As Southern manners dictated, we had to try a little of everything, but we also had to clean our plates, so there was no way of picking around it. I can still... <laughs> this is so gross. She says, I can still remember the slick shine of that icky tomato jello on my plate and the cold, tomatoey taste in my mouth. When all the grandkids grew up and dispersed and Thanksgiving grew smaller and smaller, the tomato aspect eventually disappeared. As much as I absolutely hated that dish, I would give anything to have another one of those large... Family Thanksgivings with my grandmother, even if it meant the tomato aspic. So thank you so much for confirming that we are not the only family in America who has that disgusting tomato jello at Thanksgiving dinner. I appreciate it. <laughs> and thanks to everyone who's written in. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is our email address where you can send your letters. You can also message us on Facebook or tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. And if you want to keep up with us during the week, you can find us on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com, as well as Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. And, of course, you can also find us on YouTube, where I recommend heading over to YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And watching the video C is for consent if you want more info on what consent really means. So head on over, YouTube.com slash StuffMomNeverToldYou. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. That's audiblepodcast.com slash stuffmom.